0: Well, thank you you very much, thank you Yuki. It's always a pleasure to speak at Oxford, and always an honor to be asked to speak by graduate students who are of course the real So there's a companion piece to this paper giving this talk from and in which I try to give an account of the concept of an ontological uh, category. And having done that to my satisfaction, I went on to define ontology as the discipline that attempts to answer Quine's ontological question, that is, what is there in terms of a system of ontological categories? And I suggested that an ontology is any given attempt at such an answer. Uh, And very roughly, well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say here that let's simply assume that we have some sort of intuitive grasp of the concepts that I've just uh, mentioned. For example, natural class, ontological category, as certainly a a, a necessary condition for something being an ontological category would be a natural class, Um, ontology the mass term, uh, ontology the count noun. And I'm going to begin by presenting a classification of ontologies. I have to say this classification is a bit parochial because it doesn't take into account that one important division between types of ontology is between the Meinongian and the non-Meinongian ones. Let's say that this is a classification. We're going to. I'm going to presuppose that everything is slash exists, and that the classification is a class of classification of ontologies within uh, the the great Minongian, uh non-Meinongian division. Now the major division of my proposed classification is a division of ontologies into monocategorial and polycategorial ontologies. A monocategorial ontology is an ontology that implies that there's only one primary ontological category that is that there's only one ontological category that's not a subcategory of any other ontological category and that everything uh, belongs to that category. Okay, I've got a note to myself here that I should read a footnote uh, at this point. So maybe I'd better read uh, that footnote. If I can find it. Um, no, I can't find it, so I won't read it. Uh, let me give some examples of monocategorial uh, ontologies. Um, ontologies according to which there's just one primary um, ontological category. One obvious example is austere nominalism, uh, as uh, as opposed to luxuriant nominalism, which recognizes tropes or uh, uh, particularized properties or something like that. That is, austere nominalism says there exist only concrete particulars or substances or individual things or whatever. There's some one category that includes all the ordinary objects of everyday. Uh, life, and that's, that's, those are the only things there are. Another example of a monocategorial ontology would be Jim Van new bundle theory. That is, it's his and that he invented it, not that he endorses it. Um, according to that ontology, there exist only uh, properties, uh, only universals, and those properties don 't have any fusions, and they don 't have mereological sums, and uh, there aren't such things as bundles of them. all statements about concrete particulars are somehow just uh, substances about uh, statements about co-located uh, properties. So you know, one interesting consequence of that ontology is actually it doesn't have any adherence because presumably none of its adherents are properties. Um, Another example of, uh, which is why one of the reasons Van Cleef uh, thinks it's uh, uh, not a very plausible ontology, though it does solve some problems that uh, um, infect other versions of the bundle theory. A third example is the ontology that's being worked out by Laurie Paul. She says there exist only properties, uh, but they uh, do have fusions. But the fusion of some properties is also a property. In fact, everything uh, is a fusion of properties, including Laurie Paul. So according to this uh, monocategorial ontology, um, there is such a person as Laurie Paul. There is such a thing as this uh, podium. There are all the things you think there are, and a lot more besides. But they're all properties of some very complicated sort. So, uh, again, everything is a property, and that's the only ontological, at least the only primary ontological category there is. It may have subcategories. Now, I'll give some examples of polycategorial ontologies in connection with the subdivisions of that division. I want to divide polycategorial ontologies into relational and constituent ontologies the relational and constituent ontologies of my title uh, and I think that the distinction between relational and constituent ontologies is best explained in terms of the concept of ontological structure so i 'll try to explain that concept let's say that a relation is quasi mereological if it 's either the part whole relation or is in some vague sense analogous to or comparable to the part-whole relation. And let us say that a constituent of an object is either one of its parts or some object that is not in the strict sense one of its parts but stands in some quasi meriological or part-like relation to it. Let us say that to specify the meriological structure of an ordinary particular substance, individual, concrete thing, whatever you want to call it, is to specify the other ordinary particulars, if any, that are its parts in the strict and myriological sense. That is, by saying which other ordinary particulars bear the part-whole relation to it. And perhaps, in addition, by saying something about how those other ordinary particulars stand to one another in respect of certain relations thought to be structure-relevant. Spatial relations, it might be, or causal uh, relations. That's to specify the myriological structure of an object, of an ordinary object, a particular, a concrete thing. In contrast, let's say that to specify the ontological structure of an ordinary particular, or whatever you want to call it, is to specify the objects in ontological categories that do not overlap concrete particular uh, and which bear some quasi-muriological relation to it. Okay, so... Mereological structure of the podium is smaller things in the same category as the podium that are parts of it, and maybe to specify it is to say some things about how they're related to each other. Ontological structure of the podium, things that don't belong to the same ontological category as the podium, and are either parts of it, or at least they're some part like or quasi-mereological relation to it, its constituents. A relational ontology, then, is a polygata- is a polycategorial ontology, one of whose primary categories is uh, concrete particular or something very much to the same purpose, uh, something in the ontological neighborhood that implies that concrete particulars have no ontological structure. A relational ontology says uh, that there are one of the things that there are are things in the same category as this podium they don't have any ontological structure and furthermore relational ontology uh, rejects nominalism and insists that there are properties, features characteristics uh, that this thing falls under uh, but whatever they are they're not its constituents they don't stand in any quasi meriological or part-like relation to it um, the only structure the things like the podium have is good old fashioned mereological structure. A constituent ontology, on the other hand, um, includes concrete particular in its uh, inventory of things, as does um, as do both austere nominalism and relational ontologies. Uh, and it includes, unlike austere nominalism, but like the relational ontologies, it has things at least things it calls properties. Uh, or at least it has something in some other category than, maybe they're not properties, something in some other category than things like the podium, and it says that these things in other ontological categories are constituents of the podium, either it's parts or it's quasi-parts. Examples now. The so-called bundle theory. Uh, that is of the nature of concrete particulars can serve as a paradigm of a constituent ontology provided that we suppose that the bundle theory that we're talking about implies that there really are bundles of properties that is, and bundles of universals and that something is a bundle of universals if and only if it's a concrete particular Uh, and provided too that we suppose that the bundle theory assigns bundles of properties, on the one hand, and properties to to distinct and non-overlapping ontological categories. That is, we're thinking of a version of the bundle theory that says there really are such things as bundles of properties. Um, There aren't just properties bundled, uh, or co-located properties, or something like that. There really are things that are bundles of properties, and they're not properties. They don't belong to the same ontological category as properties they belong to some other ontological uh, category Um, so we're talking about the classical or uh, garden variety uh, bundle theory here not Van Cleve's aptly named new bundle theory uh, or Paul's sort of bundle theory according to which um, the podium is a fusion of properties but is still a property Um, so the classical bundle theory is obviously a constituent ontology, because it implies that uh, uh, universals, which don't belong to the same category as podiums, uh, are constituents of podiums. Somehow, they are bundled into uh, the podium. Um, and obviously, and if an ontology implies that the concrete or the concrete particulars have so-called bare particulars. Uh, as constituents or have tropes uh, as they're called as constituents that ontology too will be a constituent ontology but almost all constituent uh, ontologies imply that among the ontological constituents of concrete particulars are properties they may be tropes, they may be universals and of course any such ontology will imply that the important relation that is variously called having or exemplifying or instantiating that is the most salient of the relations that Solomon Bears to wisdom, Central Park to rectangularity, Arizona to aridity, is intimately related to the idea of properties as constituents. The properties that a concrete particular has, or exemplifies, or instantiates, are exactly those that are its constituents the statement the concrete particular X has the property F is equivalent to the property F is a constituent of the concrete particular X. Okay so those are some examples of constituent ontologies. Now to relational ontologies. Uh, My own favorite ontology can serve as an example of a relational ontology. (coughs) Um, According to this ontology uh, members of the primary category that can variously be called substance, concrete thing, individual thing, particular thing, all those things are without ontological structure. Such structure as a particular thing like a dog has is the structure that supervenes on its parts, cells, electrons, and their spatial and causal relations to one another. And every part of a dog or any other particular thing is itself a member of the one primary category of the same primary category, a particular thing. This must be, or the favorite ontology contends, everything that is not a particular thing is an abstract object, uh, a relation. Uh, I count properties and propositions as special cases of relations, one-term relations and zero-term uh, relations. Um, and there is no possible sense of constituent in which an abstract object can be a constituent of a substance-slash-concrete-particular-slash-individual thing. Consider, for example, my dachshund, Jack, and the property xenophobia. That is, aggressive hostility toward any living thing that one has not been properly introduced to. Xenophobia is certainly one of Jack's properties, and it's certainly a universal since he shares it with his little life partner, my other dachshund, Sonia. Uh, but it is in no possible sense one of his constituents. For the proponent of the favored ontology, the dyadic relation having that Jack and Sonia individually bear to the property xenophobia is as abstract, and you might say external, as the variably polyadic relation being numbered by that the two of them jointly bear to the number two. According to the favorite ontology, a property or attribute is something one ascribes to something by saying a certain thing about it. Xenophobia, for example, is what one ascribes to something by saying that it's a xenophobe. The attribute xenophobia, that's the thing I say about Jack or Hitler when I say of either of them that he's a xenophobe, is according to the favorite ontology an unsaturated assertible. That is, I if you've read my article, Theory of Properties, that's the term I uh, used there, and it's created the impression since I borrowed, obviously, the term from Frege, uh, what Ungezeichnet. Uh, it's the only possible translation, I guess, of the German word. So, in that sense, I borrowed it from him. Uh, but I didn't mean, though, to um, be saying uh, that my so called properties are things that in any way resemble Frege's concepts in calling them unsaturated, because I don't understand what Frege is talking about. It doesn't make any sense to me uh, at all. I just meant that uh, well, propositions they're saturated. They can just be uh, true or false. You can just uh, uh, say one of them and what you say is true or false. A property well, yeah, truth and falsity apply to it, but only in relation to in the case of an attribute an object uh, because they can be true or false of the object, Uh, but not true or false, absolutely. Uh, With a binary relation you need two objects and there's some complicated order questions that are on us there, uh, too. But that's all all I meant. Uh, Absolute truth in the case of the propositions, truth in relation, only in relation to things uh, in the case of properties. a second example of a relational ontology is provided by David Lewis's ontology of properties. I mean what he calls properties, not what he calls universals. Uh, so, according to Lewis, um, a property is a set of possible objects. Something is a property if and only if it is a set, all of whose members are possible objects. And there are things that are not possible objects, going to Lewis. Uh, In fact, he would probably actually have been um, advised to say that a property was any set uh, of objects. But um, in any case, he said possible objects. The property of being a pig or uh, porcinity, Lewis says, is simply the set of all possible pigs, which is a set far bigger than the set of actual pigs. Um, Consider an actual pig Freddy. Freddie, of course, has porcinity. And what is this relation having that holds between the particular pig, Freddie, and porcinity? Well, simply set membership. And the relation that a set of possibilia bears to its individual members is certainly uh, um, not uh, constituency. Freddie is in no doubt, in some sense, a constituent of the set of all possible pigs constituent is a very flexible word and it's probably flexible enough to permit that application, but there's no conceivable sense in which the set of all possible pigs is a constituent of Freddie. Um, so I think Lewis is uh, that's a very clear example of a relational ontology. Okay, well let those be the examples. What I want to talk about mainly is some um, reasons for preferring a relational to a constituent ontology. Uh, and uh, I'll present these in the form, I guess, of reasons for repudiating the idea of ontological structure uh, and uh, not repudiating it as the, for the reason that the austere nominalists repudiate repudiated, that, uh, namely that there aren't any properties or any other things besides abstract objects, besides concrete particulars to enter into, uh, to be constituents, uh, to be non-particular constituents of constituents. I want to say there are non-particulars, all right, but they are uh, certainly not the kinds of things that could be constituents in any possible sense. Um, Now, I have to say that my principal reason for repudiating the idea of ontological structure is a reason (coughs) that I can't expect anyone else to share. Uh, The reason is very straightforward. What I don't understand the idea of ontological structure or indeed any of the ideas with which one finds it entwined in the various constituent ontologies. I do not understand the words and phrases that are typical items of the core vocabulary of any given constituent ontology. Eminent universal. Trope exist wholly in, wholly present wherever it is instantiated, constituent of, set of a universal in particular in that order. These are all mysteries to me. Perhaps the greatest of these mysteries, the one most opaque to my understanding, um, the one that just leaves me completely bewildered. Uh, uh, is the kind of language that is used when the constituents of concrete particulars are said to be physical quantities with numerical measures. Now the following passage from On the Plurality of Worlds is a good example of such language. Now I can see that in this passage Lewis is expounding a theory that although he stops short of endorsing it, it, is for him a living, that as I can see he doesn't endorse it, but nevertheless um, he treats it with considerable respect, and it's certainly a living option for him. He certainly doesn't think that the words he uses to expound the theory are meaningless. Now note that the universals referred to in this passage are not as so sort to of call them Ludovician properties. they're not the kinds of things I was using in the example about the pig uh, a moment ago. These are imminent universals, not sets of possible objects and uh, the quotation is the first one uh, handout. Um, Consider two particles, each having unit positive charge. Each one contains a non-spatial temporal part corresponding to charge. It is universal and the same universal for both particles. One and the same part universal recurs. It is multiply located. It is wholly present in both particles, a shared common part whereby the two particles overlap. being alike by sharing a universal is having something in common in an absolutely in an absolutely literal sense. Such talk bewilders me uh, to a degree that I find it hard to convey. Perhaps I can evoke the appropriate sense of bewilderment, wonderful phrase by quoting a passage from a referee's report I wrote a few years ago. Now, I should say that I was not recommending that the editor reject the paper under review because I thought that the core vocabulary of the author's ontology uh, was meaningless. I was rather trying to convince the editor that the ideal referee for the paper would not be someone who, like me, thought that that vocabulary uh, was meaningless. And this, uh, I've quoted this the, the stuff from the report on the Uh, or some of it at least on the uh, handout also the author contends that the features of an electron the electron's charge or mass, charge, and spin are the examples of its features the author cites are, quote, constituents, unquote of the electron I don't care who says this not even if it's David Lewis it just doesn't make any sense consider the case of mass let amber be a particular electron Amber's mass rest mass anyway is 9 point11 times 10 to the minus 31st kilograms um, I rounded it off pretend it's the exact figure um, so consider that phrase 9.11 times 10 to the minus 31st kilograms um, if uh, if it's a name of something that is if the is of the sentence uh, above is the is of it is, is the is of identity uh... it's the name of an abstract object uh, and if nine point one one times ten to the minus thirty first kilograms isn't a name of anything if it is, as Quine liked to say, a syncategorimatic phrase or if it is a name of something but is not a name of Amber's mass why would anyone suppose that the phrase Amber's mass is a name of anything? it looks to me as if either Amber's the two phrases, Amber's mass and 9.11 times 10 to the minus 31st kilograms are two names for one thing or neither one, Amber's mass included, is a name for anything. There just isn't anything for Amber's mass to name but 9.11 times 10 to the uh, minus 31st kilograms. And uh, so over here, there's a, uh, uh, maybe a simpler case will help uh, with this. I mean, these are the two phrases I was talking about. Uh, consider these two phrases: the length of Manhattan and 13.4 miles. Uh, it's certainly true, we express the truth by saying the length of Manhattan is 13.4 uh, miles. Is that is the uh, actual the identity sign, or is it is there some? Maybe this is some com- complicated way of predicating something of uh, Manhattan, but you're not really referring to anything but Manhattan there. Either way. Uh, If it's the identity sign, uh, then obviously um, what is related by the identity, uh, what the two phrases that flank the identity sign are names for some abstract object. And if it's not the identity sign, then I guess they're not names for anything. The the sentence as a whole will be true, but not because those two uh, terms in it actually uh, denote something. Well, that's just by analogy, that's the same point I was making uh, about uh, Amber's mass at 9.11 uh, times 10 to the minus minus thirty first kilograms. Well, obviously there's nothing uh, there's nothing to that position. It's quite meaningless. If the phrases are syntagmatically, suppose they are. But suppose that this actually does name something, and what it names it names is that uh, that there is such a thing. There is something actually denoted by 9.11 times 10 to the minus 31. Uh, Kilograms, could that be a constituent of the electron? Well, I mean, what kind of object is that? Look, you can perform arithmetical operations on it, for goodness sake. You can divide it by a number, for example. If you divide it by 6, the result is 1.518 times 10 to the minus 31st kilograms. Uh, Or you can multiply it by another physical quantity. Uh, If you multiply it by 10 meters per second per second, which is the magnitude of an acceleration, uh, the result is 9.11 times 10 to the uh, minus 30th kilogram meters per second per second. Now, so those are two little calculations. One I multiplied by a pure number, the other I multiplied by, um, or divided by a pure number, the other I multiplied by a physical uh, quantity. The results of those calculations have other names. Other names for the first result, uh, 1.518 times 10 to the minus 31 kilograms, are one-sixth the rest mass of an electron, and the amount amber's mass would increase by uh, if it was accelerated from rest to half the speed of light. Um, Another name for the second result, the one with the complicated physical quantity, kilogram meters per second per second, uh, is if uh, another name for that result, provided that amber is actually near the surface of the earth, is the magnitude of the gravitational force in the direction of the center of the earth uh, that the earth is exerting on amber since so ten meters per second per second, the thing I multiplied it uh, by is the magnitude of the acceleration toward the center of uh, the earth of a body near the surface of the earth and in free fall that's due to the earth's gravity. Uh, performing calculations like the ones I performed to get those results is what solving the problems in physics textbooks largely consists in. At least the last stage of the problem uh, does. I guess the trick of the problem is usually get to the point where you can do that kind of arithmetic. Uh, that is, applying arithmetical operations like multiplication and division to items like charges, masses, and spins. I can attach no sense to the idea that something that one can apply arithmetical operations to is a constituent of those physical things. Uh, all right, that's the end of the, um, my protest to the editor, but uh, my suitability for um, refereeing that paper. Um, and I contend, uh, back to the present, what goes for quantitative imminent universals like mass and charge goes for non-quantitative imminent universals like color universals and shape universals. Uh, now, since those universals are non-quantitative, I can't, in trying to describe the bewilderment I experience when I try to understand what their proponents have said about them, complain that they are objects that one can apply arithmetical operations to. The bewilderment I experience arises when I try to perform some uh, when I try to form some conception of what imminent universals could be. I can see that they are not what I call properties. Not things that stand to one place open sentences as propositions stand to closed sentences. Um, Not things that are like propositions in that the concepts truth, and falsity apply to them, and unlike propositions, in that they are things that are not true or false simpliciter, but are rather true or false of things. True, perhaps, of this thing, and not of that thing. I can see that immanent universals can't be properties, can't be what I call properties, because if for no other reason, they're supposed to have some sort of presence in the physical world, or at least some of them are they Um... They're supposed, they can be constituents of physical things they can be located in space albeit their spatial features are according to typical uh, proponents of the constituent ontology strikingly different uh, from the spatial features of the paradigmatic space operators that is concrete physical objects but if they are not what I call properties what, what are they the features attributed to imminent universals by those who believe in them seem to me to be an impossible amalgam of the features of substances or, and attributes or uh, concrete things and properties. And I must make it clear that when I say these things, I do not pretend to be presenting an argument. What I'm presenting is a confession. Just as a confession of faith, someone's recitation of the Nicene Creed, for example, is not a presentation of an argument for the thesis that anyone other than the speaker should accept the propositions the confession comprises, a confession of bewilderment is not a presentation of an argument for the thesis that anyone else should be bewildered by whatever it is the speaker finds bewildered. What goes for imminent universals? goes for tropes. I don't understand what people can be talking about when they talk about these alleged items. I will attempt once more to evoke the appropriate sense of bewilderment. Consider two tennis balls. I should have brought two of them with me for props, but use your imagination. Among their other features, each is 6.7 centimeters in diameter, and the color of each is a rather distressing neon green. Now, apparently, some people understand what it means to say that each of the balls has its own color, albeit that the color of one is a perfect duplicate of the color of the other. I wonder whether anyone would understand me if I said that each ball had its own diameter, uh, albeit that the diameter of one was a perfect duplicate of the diameter of the other. I doubt it, but one statement makes about as much sense to me as the other for just as the diameter of one of the balls is the diameter of the other, that is 6.7 centimeters, the color of one of the balls is the color of the other, that rather distressing neon green. Now on that point, the friends of imminent universals, those who are not also friends of tropes, will agree with me. Setting to one side the fact that it is difficult to suppose that they and I mean the same thing by property, They and I agree that one property, such as greenness or the color green, I guess those are the same thing, may be a property of two particular things, such as two balls. They and I disagree about what it is for a property to be a property of a given particular. The friends of Eminent Universal spell this out in terms of constituency. I don't spell it out at all. Uh, Nor do I have any sense of what it would be to spell out what it is for a given property. To belong to a given object or objects. Um, tell you know the friends of Eminent Universals to say, look, we've got a theory. We can explain what it is for a property uh, to belong uh, to an object, it's for it to be a constituent of it, and you can't. Um, those of you who are familiar with the controversy I had with David Lewis a long time ago will see that we have wandered into the vicinity of what I once called. The uh, Lewis-Heidegger problem. Um, The Lewis-Heidegger problem is a problem about truth. Um, It arose from some remarks that David made about um, magical ersatzism and some remarks that Heidegger made um, from Wiesenthal-Hawright about the correspondence theory of uh, truth. Remarkable convergence between Uh, two philosophers there I thought Um, it could be framed as a question how does a certain concrete object um, a tennis ball a a tennis ball for example reach out and take hold of a certain proposition for example the proposition that at least one thing is neon green um, which is an abstract object so there's the neon green tennis ball or there's the tennis ball which is neon green And uh, there's the abstract object, the proposition, the proposition that at least one thing is neon green. And somehow um, that tennis ball reaches into the uh, space of propositions and makes some of them, that one included, true. Um, Maybe it's over causation. Other things may make it true, too. But at least in some sense, that does not. Well, that's very parallel. That's very much like the question, how does a concrete object, like a tennis ball, reach out and take hold of a property, like the color neon green, which is an abstract object, and make it had, or exemplified, or instantiated? Um, Maybe, in fact, that that question is just a generalization of the Lewis Heidegger uh, question generalization based on the fact that propositions are true or false simpliciter and properties are true or false only of things in relation uh, to things. In my judgment, in my view, as far as I can see, neither of those questions has an answer. That is, I mean, the, um, no meaningful statement among all possible meaningful statements counts as an answer. Uh, to either of those questions, either the question, how does the tennis ball make the proposition that something is green, at least one thing is green true, or how does the tennis ball make the proposition, make the property uh, being neon green instantiated? Um, Now, I'm experienced enough to know that when you say things like that, when you say that um, things that philosophers are saying, a lot of philosophers are saying is meaningless, or that they've been proposing answers to questions that have no answers, uh, they take offense. Uh, I'll say what I've said many times. In philosophy, and particularly in metaphysics, especially in metaphysics, a charge of meaninglessness should be no more offensive than a charge of falsity. Uh, Meaninglessness is what we risk in metaphysics. It's a rare metaphysical sentence that does manage to to express a proposition and expresses a false one. Um, And on those rare occasions on which a metaphysical sentence does do that, the physical world has always existed, might be an example. Uh, That is generally because a metaphysician is encroached on someone else's territory. If my metaphysical writings contain uh, meaningless sentences, and no doubt they contain a good many of them, that is simply because I'm doing my job, trying to work out a metaphysical position. If I weren't willing to risk saying and writing things that were In Wolfgang Pauli's immortal phrase, not even false, uh, I would take up the history of philosophy. Um, Okay, enough about my principal reason for rejecting constituent ontology in all its forms. I'll now say something about one of my ancillary reasons, a reason that is epistemological or methodological or something in that area. Um, Bas Van Fraassen, as many of you will know, is rather down on what he calls analytic metaphysics. Now most of the barbs that he directs at, quote, analytic metaphysics, unquote, miss because they are based on misapprehensions or bad reasoning. Uh, but one of them hits the mark squarely. I heartily applaud all of Van Fraassen says against those metaphysicians who ate the practice of scientists or what they take to be the practice of scientists by appealing to the method of inference to the best explanation. Um, if I had ever thought that there was a method called inference to the best explanation uh, that could be used as an instrument of metaphysical discovery or which could be used to validate a metaphysical theory however it had been discovered Van Frassen would have convinced me otherwise, but thank God I never have. Um, I suspect, however, that use of this method is typical of constituent ontologians. Why is there no such word? Um, And I suspect that at least some relational ontologians, besides myself, will find it as foreign to their way of thinking as I find it to mine. Let me try to flesh out these intuitions of mine. I mean, these intuitions about what leads people to adopt these uh, constituent uh, ontologies by giving an example. The example is fictional, but like many fictions, it's got important bits of reality embedded in it. Um, A certain philosopher, Alice, sees, or thinks she sees, a certain metaphysical problem. She calls it, perhaps, the problem of one over many. How can two or more objects be, in a perfectly good sense, one? Or, in a perfectly good sense, the same? One in color, or of the same color, for example. This Granny Smith apple, that copy of A Theory of Justice, are both green. It follows that, in spite of the fact that they are two, they are numerically distinct things, they are one. They are one in color. How can we account for such facts? What metaphysical picture of the nature of ordinary particulars, like apples and books, can explain how particulars that are not the same, simpliciter, can never be, nevertheless be the same in a certain respect? Obviously, Alice announces, the way to proceed is to explain this phenomenon in terms of particulars having certain structures. And in postulating some common item in the structures of the members of every two or more membered class of particulars that are the same in a certain respect. Um, Now, the sort of structure that Alice proposes uh, that Alice proposes to appeal to in giving an explanation of this sort obviously can't be what I earlier called muriological structure. For the apple and the book have no concrete uh, particulars as common parts No atom or neutron or quark is common to them both. The kind of structure that will do the explanatory job that Alice wants done must therefore involve concrete particulars having constituents that belong to some ontological category other than concrete particular. Alice, therefore, let us suppose, makes a proposal regarding a common constituent of, to revert to our illustrative example, the apple in the book. She proposes, let us say, that both the apple and the book have among their constituents (coughs) a certain imminent universal, an object that is wholly present wherever any of the concrete particulars of which it is a constituent is present. She proposes, that is, that the common feature of the book and apple, what is ordinarily called greenness or the color green, is a common constituent of the book and apple. And why should one believe such a thing? Well, Alice contends. The theory that explains best describes best. If the, popul- if, po- if the postulation of such a common constituent is both a prima facie successful explanation of the sameness of color of numerically distinct particulars and superior to all other prima facie successful explanations of that explanandum, if there indeed are other prima facie successful explanations, that will be sufficient to warrant our believing that that constituent really exists. Um, and she might well compare this warrant uh, to the warrant in uncontroversially enjoyed by an early 20th century geneticist's belief in genes uh, or Einstein's belief in the effect of the presence of mass on the local metric of space-time in the years immediately following uh, 1950. So Alice proceeds. Before we take leave of her, let us allow her to summarize what she claims to have achieved uh, by so proceeding. I have solved a metaphysical problem. I have explained how objects that are not the same, that are numerically distinct, can nevertheless be the same in a certain respect. And in doing so, I have made a contribution to ontology. I provided a good reason for supposing that a certain ontological category exists, that is, that it has members or is non-empty. I have, moreover, demonstrated an important truth about the way in which the members of this category, eminent universal, are related to the members of another category, concrete particular. OK, now I'm happy to concede that the story of Alice, which I put forward as a parabolic representation of the philosophical method that gives rise to constituent ontologies, um, is not only fictional but a caricature. I could hardly present anything other than a caricature, a caricature of a philosophical method in such a brief compass. But I do think it is a caricature that is not utterly divorced from the actual practice of many metaphysicians. I don't suppose that I shall succeed in convincing anyone who is not already inclined to agree with me that Alice's use of so-called inference to the best explanation is a bad method for metaphysics. In my judgment, it can lead only to quasi-scientific theories that, supposing that the words in which they are framed mean anything at all, fail to explain what they were supposed to explain. I distinguish quasi-science from pseudoscience. Pseudoscience makes empirical, like astrology, for example, makes empirical claims. Quasi science doesn't. Um, When I say that a theory like Alice's fails to explain what it is supposed to explain, I do not mean to imply that someone else may eventually explain, may eventually devise a theory that explains what Alice's theory has failed to explain. My position is simply that there's nothing there to be explained that no set of statements, among all possible sets of statements, counts as an explanation of what it is for a particular to have a property or for two distinct particulars to have the same property. I am, you see, what Armstrong would call an ostrich nominalist, or would be, but for the fact that I'm not a nominalist. Maybe I'm an ostrich platonist. Um, Then what does the favored ontology have to say about the common properties of concrete particulars? Um, Well, I'll have to answer that question by saying what I have to say about the matter, for I'm I'm the only proponent of the favored ontology that I'm aware of. Uh, And the favored ontology is the only relational ontology I'm aware of, uh, um, well, in which I feel confident of the ways to address the question, what do you say about the relation between uh, individuals in particulars. I do believe that there is an object I call the color green. Well, maybe not, but um, just for some empirical reasons having to do with color. I suppose there is such a thing. Uh, um, there, are, there are lots of properties. Suppose that's one of them. Um, I think that the color green or the property greenness is exactly what all green objects have in common. And I, of course, think that they share this thing that they have in common with no—that uh, they share this thing that they have in common with no non-green object. Um, but I should never want to say that the fact that greenness was a property of both the apple and the book explained the fact that they were both green, or the fact that they were of the same color, or the fact that they were the same in a certain respect. In my view, that would be as absurd as saying that the fact that the proposition that the book and the apple are both green is true explained the fact that the book and the the apple were both green. Daddy, why is the sky blue? Uh, Well, sweetheart, uh, that's because the proposition that the sky is blue is true. Oh, Daddy, how wise you are. I do think that there are such things as propositions. I do think that they have the properties truth and falsity. I do think that, in ascribing, that ascribing these properties to propositions plays an important indispensable, and indispensable role in our discourse. Uh, consider, for example, the principles no false proposition is logically deducible from a set of true propositions, or if Q is logically deducible from a set of statements that includes P and all whose members other than P are true, then the conditional whose antecedent is P and whose consequent is Q is true. Those are fairly important uh, statements, Uh, and I don't think you could state them without um, reference to the properties of truth and falsity. But the concept of the truth of a proposition, I would say, could have only a logical role in an explanation. I put that in quotes of why some state of affairs obtains. The concept of truth can figure in an explanation only in the way in which concepts like logical deducibility and universal instantiation and the transitivity of a relation can figure in an explanation. And the same point holds mutatis mutandus, for the concept of the instantiation of a property. Um, well, then, the interlocutor says, what method do you recommend in ontology? if not the method of constructing theories to explain observed phenomena. And uh, what has this method you would recommend got to do with your adherence to a relational ontology? Well, those are very good uh, questions, but perhaps what I've said so far uh, has um, raised a lot of questions. Uh, So um, that's just one more of them, and I'll leave the questions the paper Uh, has raised, uh, to you. Thank you.